one more week of this expositional stuff, and then we'll be we will be on sort of a Christmas holiday there. Um, so, as on the back side, you have exactly what was posted in uh, band. Uh, this is sort of the reading schedule, um, which Julia put together for us. So thank you for that. Um, our first. Uh, our first time where we have a discussion week is all the way out until January 21st. So you have till January 21st to read the first four chapters. But as you can tell, we are, it'll be the week after that you'll have to have been through chapter 8 as well. So we are, we are building the schedule as a way to stay on time. And, you know, I don't, personally I don't really care how you get there. But be there when we're there. So this is a way to do it. Yes, Chloe. Sure. So, I know last week there was some confusion as to, okay, so it says December 24th. December 24th, I'm assuming it's a Monday, right? This is Saturday. 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 Oh, Saturday. Sorry. I'm, yeah, this is, I'm, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so, hey, does that mean, so I'm just clarifying, does that mean that those chapters are to be read by that day, or that means that we're reading them starting that day? Um, the reason I didn't like that The start date, the assigned date. It is not a due date. The December dates for reading, they're not really due dates to read. They're just to help you guys out. I think the question was more like, so for your, if this is like the reading plan, then do we start reading chapters one and two on the 24th, or should we have already have them read by that? I'd say have it read by the 24th. Precisely. And that, the reason I say that is, or the reason Julie's saying that is by the time we get actually into the month itself, we'll have, we'll be catching up on that, and so you'll want to have it by the Saturday we are actually discussing it. Okay, cool. That was actually just my preliminary question. I okay. just wanted to clarify. I know we talked about last week, but um, people still were confused because I heard yes. people were confused. Mm -hmm. um, my actual question is, do we have a schedule of when, like for example, January 21st, Check the syllabus. Check the syllabus. Um, no, I was going to say, do we have a... <laughs> plus, the leadership team also has a more detailed schedule okay. in the chat. Okay. So. Like, of what we're covering on the specific Saturday, but it literally says this <laughs> Right. So, to the front side, um, what I'm going to do for you guys is, well, let me walk through the whole structure of it, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So, let's say it's a, a book discussion week. Um, I have some concerns that you get a group of 25 people and the same people talk and the same people don't talk and then you walk away feeling like you have nothing actual to take and add to your life. It just becomes this meaningless time. And so what we're going to do to sort of try to remedy that is we'll go through prayer groups like we normally do. Nathan will talk for five minutes or so, sort of introduce the content that we're covering in a very brief sense. Then we're going to split back up into groups of about five. Okay. You're going to use this as your sort of discussion guide. The, the spiritual disciplines, everyone is sort of in the focus group. That won't be true going forward into pastoral ministry, into hospitality, into counseling, and so forth. So what will happen is the people that are sort of your, your small group, your focus group people, are going to be placed into those smaller groups to help lead the discussion. When we come back to large group, those will be the people that sort of channel the ideas into the large group discussion. They'll be the ones responsible for the weight of the discussion. So that way, everyone, no one can sort of wallflower their way through. They will contribute in the small group. So if people don't want to talk in the large group, that's perfectly fine. They'll have an opportunity to express their views in the small group, which then the people who are leading that section will then contribute to the large group. The other nice thing about that is not everyone is going to have the same interest. So every two months, we're going to sort of rotate through the people who are doing the predominant bulk amount of talking, okay? So hopefully, we'll spend a little bit of time doing that, a little bit of time in large group. So let's say that takes 50 minutes. 
the last 10 minutes or so is going to be back to me and we're going to basically be doing sort of a worship preparation for the next day at life point so we'll either work just read through the lyrics of one of the main songs that pastor david's going to be doing or we're going to just do a reading and a quick look at whatever text jim is going to be teaching on the next day that's one of the ways that we're going to be combining with life point which is looking very promising at this point so um to to go through this right here Okay. Do I expect that you guys are going to have an incredibly detailed thing? If I'm being honest, no, I don't. What I do want you to do, though, is use this to sort of, you know, you go from December 24th all the way to January 21st. It's going to be easy to forget material that you read a month ago. So jot down the page number or something of a quote or ideas as you go through this. This is meant to sort of supplement your reading. And then when you come to that small group discussion, you can sort of fill it in in more detail if you like. So it gives a little bit of a format and not just absolute chaos in your discussions. Now, if you are into pedagogy models at all, um, you'll notice that this is laid out according to Bloom's taxonomy. So this is, the idea is that it's meant to start at a very fundamental level. There is a fact in this book. It is pure fact recall. And then if you work all the way through, you can see that I'm going to summarize, you're going to apply, you're going to synthesize, you're going to judge the work. And then the ultimate point that I want you guys to get to, and this is what makes it meaningful, is I want you guys to create. Yeah, you disagree with the author. That's cool. Anyone can disagree. Create something better. So I want you to come to, come to it and say, if you disagree with it, then tell me what you think would be better. What could what could have been said better? How could you improve on it? So you can see that we're going from a more simple level of thinking to a more complex level of thinking throughout this. This is just designed to have you engaged. So come with a few thoughts prepared and then work with the people in your small group to help prepare something better for a large group. Thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, visions, revelations on what that. exactly is the Flex Week? Then it's not a teaching, it's not a... So Flex Week will be, this is... There is... There are people who are going to design activities that are relevant to that. So like one thing that could be for this is a prayer night, a spiritual discipline of prayer. Um, one of the other things is that Julia and then Danny as well, respectively with the genders are going to work on practicum. So they'll be coming to you and talking to you about, I want to specifically apply this in this way in my life. Like I need to do blah, blah, blah. And so this is built into our culture, hopefully to give you time you say, I need to work on my Bible reading. Well, then there's a night to go work on your Bible reading or whatever the case may be. So that's the point of the Flex Week, although our activity design people will also be contributing to that just a little bit. Okay. Any other questions, thoughts? Nathan, any comments since you're sort of heading this section up? Um. It's gonna be a little bit different, like future topics. Everyone basically is doing this one, like we said. So, in the future, I will be making group, like text groups, basically, to make sure everyone is on the same page. So, all of the stuff is going out right now to everyone as a group. But in future topics, you won't all be getting the same information and all of the information. So. If you have ideas about a flex thing that you want to do, let us know. Uh, Vicky and I are creating those things. Um, so if it if it works with the plan that that we're doing, like the idea of the, the two months, then awesome. Um, but we might have to put it on back like the back burner and use it for a future thing. But if you have ideas, we'd love to hear them because you all are smart people so <laughs> and creative, so you're gonna come up with And similarly, if you know somebody who is a relevant speaker on the topic, that goes to those two yes. over there. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts or comments before we set this aside? Does it actually make sense? Is there anything that is unclear? Because we'll have enough. It'll be hard enough work to make sure that everyone's contributing. And so, if it's not clear, this is the time to clear that up. Perhaps this is your question for you.
I've got the first one. I have a plan on that. But February, yes. We'll need to talk about February. All right. Good to dive in then? All right, let's rock and roll. Who am I? Who am I? That is, that simple question has become the question of our generation. Finding one's identity appears to be the ultimate aim of most people our age. When it comes to deciding an occupation, we think, okay, how does this job fit with who I am? When it comes to a relationship, we are often determining who we hang out with by sort of the relational identifiers that we would go by commonly. So, you know, somebody's interested in sports or somebody's interested in hobbies or people congregate based on race or background and all sorts of different sort of intersections by which people congregate. Um, identity culture probably is nowhere more flagrantly, flagrantly represented than in our sexual revolution regarding gender and sexuality. The question is, you know, this is who I am. And I don't think there is any question that has more dominated our generation than this one. And this is evidenced by how often people devolve to asking the most fundamental of questions when things go horribly wrong. When all of the things that they have placed their identity in fall apart on them, then what's the question that people ask? Who really am I at the end of the day? Who really am I? Um, if you're, you know, let's say you do place your identity in those sports where you have a career-ending injury, your athletes are going to go through a very dark time. Who am I? If you have somebody who's placed their identity in the talent of their occupation, then when their hands no longer work, they're going to wonder, who am I? And so it goes with failed relationships. You know, you place all your chips on the table in this one relationship and that relationship fails, you're going to be asking who you are. These senses of failure, uh, whether it's the career-ending injury, a failed relationship or whatnot, will destroy your entire sense of self. So it is apparent to me that there is some sort of disconnect for people our age between the way we act and the way in which we are essentially, okay? We, we sense some discrepancy between the things we do and the person that we really am internally. And the way our culture responds to this, the answer that our culture has put forward is that if I can just ascertain who I really am, then I will live in accord with that, and then I will be happy, okay? It's sort of a, a reverse hedonism, if you will. It's like, if I can just find out who I am sexually, then I can live in accord with that, then I will be happy. And I, I want to push back on that just a little bit um, because I don't think it's necessarily this congruence between essence and action that is really going to lead to happiness. It's not the pursuit of one's true and natural self that will lead to happiness. Allow me to give you one reason that this might be the case. Humans are not naturally good, and what is good will lead to real happiness. And I don't necessarily even mean this in the theological sense of like, you know, no one seeks after God. That's true, but I, I, let's just talk on a very pragmatic level. No one woke up one day and was skilled enough to play piano in Carnegie Hall. Uh, no one, I think this is a Seneca quote actually, no one became wise on accident. Um, for that matter, I can tell you that my room did not get cleaned up today magically and on accident. You know, this success in any way it never happens by accident. Excellence is praised because it is difficult. It's unusual. Things tend towards disorder in our lives. And so we must transcend what is natural in order to achieve greatness. If you want to live a life that is meaningful, you're going to have to transcend the way that you would naturally be. If I just sat around and lived in the natural state that I would naturally exist in, almost everything in my life would devolve to absolute chaos. Now, is there value in, quote, knowing yourself and knowing who you are? Yes, I'm not trying to diminish that. But what we do with that information is different. Knowing yourself is valuable to know what you are flawed at, flawed in, and knowing what you're strong in so that you can do something different, so that you can eliminate the flaws and accentuate your strengths. Allow me to offer a question that is more valuable than who am I? 
this is hopefully a more insightful and helpful question. Who should I be is more helpful than who am I? This is a question with which past generations were very good at. You know, what should I do? Who should I be? That's what past generations excelled at. I'm just going to do what I do and I'm going to show up every day to work and I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do. And that isn't, there are pitfalls to that as well, but more gets accomplished that way. They just went through life doing what they're supposed to do. I think this is helpful because of our age uh, as we sit here in this room. As teenagers, we sometimes possibly lacked a small bit of self-awareness. I don't know if you look back on your high school years and think, did I, you know, like have any metacognition of what I was doing at all? Or did I just float around as a non-player character, you know, the entire time? But as we've moved into young adulthood, we've started to gather a little bit more information regarding our strengths and weaknesses. We know ourselves slightly better, I would say. Like for me, I tend to be hyper-focused on some things. I can kind of sporadically engage on something for two weeks, and then it's a different thing for two weeks. And, you know, these are some of the weaknesses that I have that I've learned about myself over the past few years. But what I have noticed in our age demographic is that we're starting to have this temptation to be okay with it because it's just who we are. We begin to say it's just the way that I am, or even worse, it's just who I am. And, and so we sort of are entering an age where we get complacent. To, to use uh, Mike Bandy's quote, you know, he's, I think he's right. For most people, who you are at 18 sort of sets the trajectory for the rest of your life. If you're a certain way at 18, you sort of tend to start to follow that track for good or for bad. We begin to think even subconsciously that the season of our life where we have to put in the work and really emphasize growth is done and we can sort of just chill and become complacent. We can sort of put it on cruise control for lack of a better expression until retirement where we go collect some seashells and then die. You know, that's, that's all, you know, you just want to put it on cruise at some point in life and then I guess die. I mean, that's really all there is to it with that sort of life pattern. If you want true happiness and true greatness, you cannot afford to be complacent. Uh, many of you have probably heard the Reformation saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That doesn't have an age limit, okay? It, you don't turn 25 and your frontal cortex is done developing at age 25 and then say, wow, I'm done killing sin. That's it. I have I've achieved glorification right here at age 25. No, of course not. There's not a single time in life where you can afford to just put it on autopilot and think you're accidentally going to stumble into holiness. The people who you respect who are 60 some, 70 years old and are just amazingly wise and amazing, like you're just, could I just be them? You know, please, like I could just, you know, love people like they do. I would, I'd be winning at life. They didn't stumble into that. They've worked their entire lifetime to be that good at interacting with people. But let me offer you a third question uh, that hopefully goes beyond the previous two that takes us right to the heart of our text tonight. This is different than who am I and who should I be? Who must I be? Who must I be? This is a subtly different question than who should I be? There are many things that we should do in life that fundamentally we're just okay if they don't happen, right? I should have gone to the gym today. Uh, you know, I should have sent a loving note to somebody. I should have prayed a little bit more this week. I should have given more of my money to the poor. But at the end of the day, we're okay with a lot of things that we should do not happening. Um, but who must I be is a different question. And Peter doesn't let us off the hook so easily. He asks, who must I be? This is the climax of the text in our, our passage for tonight, Second Peter uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 8 all the way through 13, in my opinion. I think this is the climax um, because he's saying what people ought we to be. This is the same word that Jesus uses. It's a very simple Greek word that Jesus uses. He says, I must suffer. Jesus had a lot of things that he must do in his ministry. The truth about the way that we should live is not primarily found in introspective looks at ourselves to find who we naturally are. The way we are to live is not even found in the things we should do in life, in the Christian life. It's found in the things that we must do, 
that we must necessarily do. Meaningful Christianity is incompatible with half-hearted attempts and half-hearted devotion. Jesus demands to be the sole Lord of your life. Jesus is not a should that we should, should get around to at some point. Jesus is a must that must be followed with reckless abandon. But Peter is not here a superficial preacher that calls his listeners to necessarily live in a certain way without a reasonable explanation as to why. And the very crux of that reason, and not everyone agrees with Peter in the church that he's writing to, and this is Peter's point here, is that Jesus is coming again. That is Peter's fundamental reason that there are things that we must do in this life. And the false teachers disagree with Peter on this point. Why? Well, Jesus is taking a long time to come back. And that's still true, right? I mean, we're probably, I don't know, 1900 plus years from when this was written and Jesus is still taking a long time to come back. So what is the false teacher's false conclusion? If Jesus is taking this long to come back, maybe Jesus just isn't coming back at all, right? That doesn't seem like such a hard conclusion. And I think that's the leap that the false teachers are taking. Peter, you, you seem to have this eschatological expectation. Then where is he? You know, he's supposed to be here by now. That's what Peter's dealing with. So last week, um, we saw that Peter corrected that point just by simply affirming the truth that Jesus is indeed coming back. This week, Peter's sort of going to dive into the question, why the delay? You know, if, if Jesus really is coming back, then what are we delaying on? Now, last week, we saw sort of an emphasis on the severity of God. I painted this picture for you that there are two parts to the day of the Lord, really kindness and severity, depending on what uh, people group you are in. This week, we are going to see more of the kindness side when we investigate the reason that Jesus is delaying his return. It's really because of his great loving kindness towards us. So let's have verse 8 read as we dive into the very first bit, the perception of time. Before really diving into the real reason that the, that, that the Lord hasn't returned yet, Peter calls his readers to remember something which is in direct contest to f the forgetfulness of the false teachers. Peter says the false teachers are forgetting that the world has not always been the way that it is today. And Peter calls the true followers of Christ to remember something as well. And Peter, Peter really starts by pushing back against this whole concept that it is taking a long time. His first point is that, you know, maybe you should sort of check your perception on what a long time is. And in doing so, Peter appeals to Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 through 4. This is the Old Testament background that Peter <coughs> develops this little biblical theology off of, Psalm 90, 1 through 4. The point of this passage is simply to say that, little human, you are a finite creature. Seventy years is a lifetime of waiting for you, but for God, that's nothing. And for that matter, God doesn't even reckon time the same way that you do. Now, you can get in some very technical debates about whether God is outside of time or if he's bound to time in creation in some sense. And um, if, you're, if you want a theological word to jot down, you can jot down Kyleism. Uh, this is sort of an uh, early church Jewish view on thousand-year periods and balances throughout history that some have appealed to from Psalm 90. Okay? There are other interpretations to this, but I think the most straightforward meaning of this is the very simple point, God doesn't look at time the same way you do. I think, that's all, I think that's all that Peter is trying to do here. Maybe Jesus hasn't shown up on your timeline, people in this room. Maybe as you guys have worked through uh, the, the New Testament, you've dealt with some of the same issues that some more liberal German scholars had to deal with. How do we deal with the fact that the New Testament seems to have this imminent eschatological language of like Jesus sounds like he's coming back any time? You know, how, how do you deal with the fact that it sounds so urgent in the New Testament? And yet, 
okay, here we are 2,000 years later and Jesus isn't here. The answer, human, don't worry your finite little mind about the length of time. It's not too long and it's not too short. God knows precisely what he's doing in terms of the timetable. Everything is right on schedule, verse 9. <laughs> uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises is likely an allusion back to another Old Testament text, Habakkuk 2.3. Habakkuk. Anyone? All right, sword drill, Habakkuk 2.3. Oh. oh, I'm sure that's a good one, too. It probably has something to say about angels around there. <laughs> Well, well, fill, fill some time. Habakkuk has some complaints against the Lord, right? This is a time when he's raising up another evil nation to punish an evil nation, and Habakkuk has questions about how this is supposed to work and how God is going to punish Babylon, who he's raising up, who's another evil nation, and this is what the Lord has to say back to Habakkuk. For still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely in another instance of biblical history, God is prophesying to Habakkuk regarding judgment. And God tells Habakkuk, if it seems slow, wait for it. It is on the divine timeline. Um, back to our second Peter text, some people think that God is slow. But what is the real reason for his delay? Peter is actually going to give us a substantial answer and welcome our guest of honor. Hi, this brings us to our second point, the patience of God, which, uh, you know, in my outlining runs verse 9 through 12. All right. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought uh, you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So we sort of have a, in my estimation, I didn't see this in any commentary, but I think we have a loosely chiastic structure here. I think what Peter does is he, he says influence of human behavior on the timeline of the return, the certainty of the return, and then the influence of human behavior on the timeline of the return. The emphasis of that chiasm is that it is certain that Jesus is coming back, but he's going to talk about how our behavior in context of the church has something to say about that event. So I'm not going to go into detail here um, regarding uh, some, of, some of the obscure details that you can get into, but this is once again a text that people uh, you, who deny the doctrine of election used to buttress their case. Um, but in my estimation, there is hardly any exegetical support for it. People say, they um, some immediately look to the words any and all to immediately counter the point of election, but they miss that any and all are referring to any and all of you in the context. So the question is, who is the you here? Then? And that's really the question we have to answer as we move through this text. I told you last week, back at the beginning of chapter 3, the you is referring to the beloved. If you go back to chapter 1, this is something I pointed out in our very first week here, is that you'll have to pick up on the dichotomy that Peter is drawing. There is an us versus them language throughout the entire book. And particularly in chapter 3, Peter moves to addressing the us, as in like, we're the true believers, and then there's, you know, them false teachers over there that I want you to be really, really careful of. And this makes a 
profound change with the addition of this context. Instead of God saying, this passage saying, God wants everyone to be saved, but he can't seem to make it happen, the sense then becomes God will save all of those who are numbered among the beloved, since you is defined as the beloved in verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, like I said, going back to chapter 1, we have this dichotomy, and so the sense of the passage becomes clear. While God is going to destroy the wicked, he delays in order that all who are his people would reach repentance. God is still calling the elect to himself in time, and that number is not yet complete, uh, Romans eleven twenty-five. This is, I, I use this text to say, because this is pr- primarily a Gentile church, Paul Paul makes a very interesting comment in Romans 11 to say that there is actually a specific number that God is looking to embody the elect Gentiles before the eschatological day of the Lord and the salvation of the Jewish people, Romans 11, 25. And you be wise to put it in your own insights. I do not want you to be aware of this There is a fullness, a number of individuals that God has predestined to come to Christ before he comes back. As Moo puts it, and I think this is a really nice sort of way to encapsulate the phrase, the delay of Jesus is not his disinterest, but rather his interest in humanity. Um, That God does not delight in the death of the wicked is a thorough Old Testament theme. But comments about election aside, these verses should rapture your heart. By delaying his coming back, God has permitted that you and I should not only know the Lord, but should even exist at all, right? If, if, even if he came a thousand years ago, you would have never had the opportunity to exist and to know his son. Uh, in our book study that the guys have been going through, Jordan Peterson is so often speaking about how wonderful it is to be and to exist, and it is wonderful in and of itself. And yet, Jordan Peterson never really substantiates why being is wonderful at all. He talks about the misery of being and then says being is awesome. So congratulations on existing. And he never really has a good metaphysical backup for why being is good in in and of itself. Uh, If I were to present you with the choice to have never existed at all, or to have existed and to suffer pain and to suffer hardship and to suffer death and loss and... Um, all of these pains that we endure, I hope that you would still choose to have existed. It is, it is evident to me that there are those in this room, either currently, possibly, or in the past, who are struggling with wishing that they simply have never, that they wish they had never existed. But God has given you the opportunity to exist and to share that existence with us even here tonight. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, while life can honestly be downright brutal, not only are we thankful that you exist and that you're here and that we, you know, that we have the opportunity to love you dearly, by being a Christian, God has given you the opportunity to know him. It is a beautiful gift which far exceeds the lie that it would have been better to never exist at all. To know God and to exist and to endure hardship and suffering and pain and loss in one lifetime is far, far better than to have never existed and to have never known the Lord at all. And so I just want to offer that word of encouragement. If, if that's somewhere either you've been or you are currently, you know, life has gotten you to the point where it's like, I don't, I don't even know if existing is really all that worthwhile. God has delayed his return and his cataclysmic judgment of the entire world so that you can be one of the people that he gets to enter into a relationship with if you're a Christian. And that that gives life meaning. That that makes your actions meaningful and should give you hope for existing, not only in this life, but to see what's coming in the next. The emphatic point of the chiasm then comes in the middle. God is delaying so that his people will come to know him. Yes, but that does not mean that the delay will extend indefinitely. You know, that's the counter, right? The false teachers are like, wonderful, God is delaying so that everyone can come to know him. Great, he's never coming back. You know, and that's, that's Peter's sure to cut that off right there. He says, no, actually, Jesus still is coming back. God has his number, but 
He is indeed coming back. Both Paul and Peter sort of pick, on, pick up on Jesus' teaching regarding his return like a thief in the night. Uh, one commentator even says that the rest of the New Testament de-parabolizes what Jesus used as a parable. Um, Matthew 24, 42-51, if you want to get into... Q theory and all sorts of oral traditions regarding the New Testament. You're welcome to, but uh, let's just say that Peter and Paul both picked up on the theme that Jesus has here. Matthew 24. (laughs) Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready as well. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of the household slaves to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with those habitually drunk. Pa- master- pause, right, pause right there real quick. Uh, I want you to pick up on this theme that Peter is going to not only pick up on the thief of the night theme, but he's also going to then pick up on Jesus's therefore you should act like this theme. And one of the main ways that Peter is going to say that is how we deal with each other. And that's just something I noticed right there is Jesus's teaching is beating other people and how we interact with other people. So notice the corollaries in Peter's uh, teaching here. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves, and he eats and drinks with those habitually drunk. Then the master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect, and at an hour that he does not know. And he will cut him into two and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we have Jesus coming like a thief. And then continuing in verse 10 of our Second Peter text, uh, it says that the heavens will pass away with a roar, which is an onomatopoetic word in the Greek. I can barely say that. Um, onomatopoeia. But uh, the elements are going to be burned up or dissolved, and the earth will be exposed. Now that word is, uh, I think it's translated heavenly bodies in the ESV. It's uh, stoichia, it's elements. What does elements mean? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, it, it can mean it can mean if you're looking into more of the Stoic philosophy things, it can mean like earth, fire, water, wind sort of thing. It can mean elements, elements. Um, most, as the ESV translators have opted for, it can mean heavenly bodies, like the heavenly bodies. And then there's also one debated use of elements in Paul, which I'm going to throw this back on you guys. Since we went through Colossians and there was one of those uh, texts there that we worked through. What is the other possible interpretive option for the word stoichia in that culture? Anyone remember from our time in Colossians? That's a pretty obs- stoichia elements. All right, it is, it is potentially referring to spiritual beings. That is one use in uh, pagan pagan context of the Greco-Roman world. It's highly debated even in Paul. I don't necessarily see it in Peter here. In the context, since he's talking about destroying the heavens and the earth, I think it probably means he's going to destroy the heavens and <laughs> the earth. I mean, not. I, I know it's not too insightful, but I don't necessarily think Peter is on this point of uh, spiritual beings at this point. I think he's referring more to the actual literal destruction of heavenly bodies and the earth. The point is the decreation is coming to the heavens and the earth. Everything is going to be reduced to bareness. But it's not just the physical things that are going to be reduced to bareness. Uh, Our works are also going to be laid bare. The unrighteous on that day are going to be sentenced to judgment in hell. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, which I take to be the final judgment in that context. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found within the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have the unrighteous <clears throat> sentenced to hell. On the other hand, though Christians will never come under uh, that sort of judgment, we, we, we too must stand and give an account for our works as well. It's not like we don't have to uh, have our actions put on the jumbotron of heaven to go over. We have to work through that as well. Second Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Um, as we will see momentarily, part of the works that we ought to be doing are in regard to how we treat other people. Um, I would like to show you that this isn't a simple matter of whether you loved someone or not. What you did or what you do, considering we're still living this life, is what you, what you do to another Christian is tantamount to doing it to Christ himself. And this is uh, one of Christ's main teachings on the Judgment Day, actually, in Matthew 25, uh, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's a little bit of a long passage, but I decided uh, to include it here. Um, some of you are unlucky enough to have received my 131 pages on this passage, basically, and it's only half of the book that I'm working on, but um, there's a lot in this passage that can be delved into, and I think there's a whole paradigm shift that you can set up by conceiving of things a little different way as a result of this passage that I'm going to spare you. Um, but what I do want you to get from this passage is that Christians are so tightly united with Christ in our forensic union that what you do to other Christians, you have basically done to Christ himself. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see the sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then you'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want you to imagine that we are in heaven someday, and... You're having this conversation with the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus tells you that you slandered him, or at a time when he needed food, you refused to buy him food, or in some terse conversation, you were profoundly rude to him. I think the natural claim, I think we would be foolish to say that we would do any different than the people in this passage, the natural claim is to say, when did I do that? I would never treat you like that, Jesus. Yet, because we are one with Christ, Jesus can truly say that what you did to your fellow Christian, you did that to him. Conversely, let's say that there is a vulnerable individual who you see sort of floating on the corner of a busy room who is on the verge of tears, and you go up to them, and you spend time talking to them, and you do your best to make them feel welcomed, and you're a true friend to them. Or perhaps you know somebody, we all know somebody, who is a little bit socially awkward, smells a little weird, um, but, but you know that they need somebody, and you take time, you take that deep breath where you go, and you decide to listen, and you decide to really listen and slow down and hear what they have to say. 
And by the way, those people are probably some of the most loyal people that you'll ever meet because they actually need something, not like the cool people who have all their social needs met, but it's an aside. Jesus can say that you wiped his tears and that you listened to him on that day. So we would like to say that we would go out of our way to feed Jesus and to give him everything that we have and that we would be willing to write him a note of encouragement or we'd be willing to pick him up and give him a ride or let him stay the night or be hospitable to him generally. But can I tell you that if you don't do those things for other people and other believers particularly right now, not only wouldn't you do it for Jesus, but can I offer something even stronger and say that you don't do it for Christ right now? I want you to, right now, to make it a little bit more graspable and practical, I want you to think of maybe one or two other believers that, quite frankly, you just flatly dislike. And maybe they're in your family. You maybe would prefer to never see them ever again if you had the choice or if you didn't have to, you wouldn't really have anything to do with them ever again. They may have been very unchristian and unchrist-like in times past and sinful in their actions towards you. But if they are true Christians, then Christ is indeed in them. So how are you doing in treating that Jesus in them? When it comes to Judgment Day, how you treated Christ in them will be of principal importance. Have you loved the Christ that is present by loving his body of people? This is a high stakes issue. This is a judgment day level issue. And I would highly suggest that you would start by, um, well, let's just say if you love Christ so much, then start by loving the ones that you find most distasteful in your day-to-day -day life. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be unkind to people outside of the Christian household, but I, I think Paul's teaching is especially helpful here on this point. We are to do good things to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And, and so there's a special kindness inside of this family. And, and that is, that's literally the differentiating mark between Christians and unchristians on that final day that distinguishes the sheep and the goats is how you are treating people who are little Christ. So don't lay up your treasure in or on this earth. That's moving into verse 11. Since everything about this world is going to be destroyed, don't lay up treasure in this world. So how do we lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven? By being the kind of people that we must be. Now, what I find really interesting is what kind of people you ought to be. That word kind there means like what country you are from. And this fits with the whole New Testament narrative. There are only two groups of people in this entire world, and they belong to two different kingdoms. There are those in Revelation language who belong to the kingdom. I love how Revelation phrases that. There are not numerous kingdoms of this world, though there are. There is one kingdom of this world, and they're united against God. And then there is one kingdom of God, and those two are set at odds against each other. There are, those are the only two options of people groups in this entire world. And Peter's point is that you guys, hopefully everyone in this room, belong to that other kingdom. You are pilgrims on this earth. Which, by the way, it, it <laughs> um, racism in the church only shows to me a very, very poor eschatology. Um, and, and the reason is that there are only two kingdoms. And when you, when you show that you are concerned over this kingdom and that kingdom more than the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of unrighteousness, then it shows that you really haven't grasped the eschatological truth of um, being a pilgrim that is awaiting a new heaven and a new earth. There is no room for racism within the church once we understand that we have a new citizenship laid up for us within heaven. So how do we show that we are people of a different kingdom? Well, there are two ways that we do that in this text. Uh, the ESV translates it according to holiness and godliness. It's, it's not a bad stab at the English, but it's, it's uh, it would be awkward if you translate it in a literal sense. It's like conducts and godlinesses. You know, it's plural. The idea is that it's a way of life. There are numerous ways 
to conduct yourselves. There are numerous avenues in which you are holy and godly. So these two are oriented, one's horizontal and one's vertical. The holy conducts, which means a change in behavior towards other men. It's a, it's a word that means upturning in your behavior towards other people. It's sort of a pivoting word. Um, and then godliness is defined as a piety that has a heart level reverence and worship, excuse me, for God. In other words, very simply, love your neighbor and love the Lord God by worshiping and venerating him for who he is. Ironically, uh, the classic passage on love is eschatological too. And that's really what Peter is saying here is love your neighbor. The classic passage, 1 Corinthians 13, is an eschatological passage. Why? The Corinthians are obsessed with spiritual gifts. And what does Paul say? Love, knowledge, and prophecy. Let's take those three. Knowledge and prophecy stop when the new creation comes, when the perfect comes, because what are you going to prophesy about? It's here. And what are you going to need to know? You see it. But what is the one thing that is a a bit of continuity between both this age and the age to come? Love. You're going to love people now, and you're going to continue to love people into eternity future. So as we think about loving one another, if you want to flip over to the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, that's fine. We're not going to have any text out of it read, but I'm going to be loosely following it. When we think about love, I think I think in our evangelical circles, we do well to think about love as an action. I think that is a good point that we have developed. And while I appreciate that thinking, you cannot say that you love your brothers and sisters in this room simply because you do stuff for them. Okay, And that's actually where Paul starts the passage. Um, You could give every cent that you own to somebody else in this room and still have no love for them. You could die a horrible, agonizing, anguishing death and still have no love for them. That's how Paul starts out this 1 Corinthians 13 love passage. But allow me, um, allow me to give you a mental checklist as we work through this passage of what loving somebody really looks like. This is the conducts towards men that Peter is calling us to, is basically loving God and loving neighbor. And allow me to just sort of work through... <clears throat> Okay, you say you love somebody, but does your mental description of, yeah, I I love the person I find annoying, show congruence with what the Bible teaches about loving somebody else? So let let me throw out a few questions. Earlier I told you to pick one person that you just find a little bit annoying, and let me, let me see if we can say that we truly love that person. Are you slow tempered with them? Are you full? of gentle service toward them. Actually, let me, let me stop, let me pause. I want to say this because I, I think it's relevant and I think it's important. It's going to be even more important going forward. This is especially important for people who consider themselves core members of Koinonia, okay? Um, I think we have a tendency as all people do in every literal church ever, to think this is a good text and a good application for somebody else. I want you, no matter how involved you are in this thing, to think this is me. We can all learn to love better, okay? So don't apply this to somebody else. Apply this to yourself. Let me start back over. Are you slow-tempered with somebody? Are you full of gentle service toward them? Are you boiling hot because you are jealous of them or what they have? Do you feel like you need to one-up them and show that you're just a touch better than they are? Do you feel that fundamentally you're just arrogantly a little bit better than them? And do you, you might not ever admit that to yourself, but do you just subconsciously think, yeah, they're, they're a little bit inferior to me? Uh, moving forward. Is it easy for them to anger and irritate you? This is one that I, I thought I thought was really interesting in Paul's list is maybe this person can make just one comment, but because you aren't loving them, man, do you get snarky over tiny little annoyances, right? Like somebody else you like could say those things and you're, you just roll with it. It's kind of funny. But that person you don't like says that exact same comment and you're like, Ooh, man, I am... You know, I'm, I'm ready to get snarky with them. Do you hold on to things that they have done in the past? Don't hold things over people's heads. Give them a chance to change. 
was actually one of the things that was most difficult for me in high school is it was like I, I would always live in the shadow of who I was, right? And I had to hop from Christian group to Christian group to kind of escape the image of who I was in the past. That literally should be the last thing that defines a Christian group. Um, but I think it's unfortunately not. I, I think we do get trapped into who we were. And so if a Christian group particularly can't have mercy and actually see progress in individuals, then we're going to really shed people who have awesome potential because they don't feel like people are ever seeing them differently. Give them a chance to change. When addressing one issue, particularly I think in romantic relationships, do you go A to Z down the list? It starts with one thing, but then wow, this accidental list of things that I've been irritated about just happens to come out and we go down the 20 things that I've actually been irritated about over the past two weeks and two years and two decades if you don't address things in time. Let things go. That's the simplest way I can put it. If you love somebody, let things go. Do you rejoice when people do something that's wrong? You say, I would never do that. But if you think lowly of them, do you ever feel vindicated about your judgment when somebody goes off the rails? Like, oh man, I just knew Johnny. I just knew Johnny was bad news. And you know, now I know I was right. His true colors are coming out after all. This should break your heart. This should not give you any cause to rejoice or make you feel good about being right. On the converse side, when someone's heading in a genuinely good direction, are you glad to see that they're doing good, or do you subtly wish that they would have proved you right by not being that good of a person, right? Or, or do we want our snap judgments to be vindicated when we see people's conduct? Do you bear all things? In other words, do you let love cover over a multitude of sins? There are plenty of things that you can get irritated about and offended over. Um, you, there are plenty of opportunities to get hurt when you spend a lot of time with other people. Are you willing to move on and accept one back into full fellowship and full relationship with them? Do you believe all things and hope all things? In other words, do you genuinely trust someone? Um, when there are a, po a few possible explanations to a situation, do you, is your go-to uh, response to assume the worst or do you give the benefit of the doubt? Perhaps a very simple social example to suffice. Uh, if some friends of yours choose to hang out without you, but you don't get the invite, do you let your insecurities win and say, oh, they probably don't like me, they probably hate me, that's probably why they're excluding me, or do you just rejoice in the fact that, yeah, my friends are having a good time? Like that to me is an example of, do you trust them? Do you trust that they are your real friends? Like they actually care about you and they don't hate you like secretly. That's a real insecurity. All my friends actually don't like me. Well, if you actually trust your friends and you actually love them, then trust them. Like extend some real trust to them in social situations. Finally, do you stand behind people during tough times? Do you stand your ground and have endurance in the tough times and persevere with people? In other words, do you quit on people? Are you a one and done type of friend? And I'll be friends with you once, but heaven forbid if you hurt me once because I'll slam those walls right back up so fast, you'll never access me ever again. Truly, do you let your insecurities win or do you love God by loving other people? Loving others and delighting in God is how we are supposed to wait on the Lord's return. But not only is it how we're supposed to wait, believe it or not, it hastens his coming. It hastens his coming. Um, that is not to diminish God's sovereignty and that the Father knows the day and the hour. What it is to say is that God has accounted for human actions when he has set his day of the Lord's return. Notice the sort of paradigm and the balance here on the chiasm. On one hand, it was them reaching repentance that he's delaying for. And on the other hand, it's the holiness of his people that accelerates the day of the Lord. It, it reminds me even in the beginning of Colossians that Paul says that he must fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings, which is a difficult passage to interpret. But it's like Paul is doing what he's supposed to, and he is accelerating the coming of the Lord, if you look over to Colossians. There have been some rabbinic traditions uh, to this point, which probably uh, or originated with Isaiah 60, 22. And I posted a clip in, um, in Band this week of The Chosen, where Nicodemus is portrayed as like, this evil must be purged from this land if we want Messiah to come. And, 
and I think it was really it was really cool that the chosen actually included that rabbinic tradition, and they were partially right, right? The New Testament authors pick up on that theme, but the new but the rabbinic tradition was wrong in the sense that the Old Testament they weren't expecting a split coming of the Messiah, one for grace and one for judgment. They're partially right, but they weren't quite ready for the divine irony that Christ had to offer them in a first coming and a second coming. Uh, Isaiah 60:22 is the springboard for a whole rabbinic tradition on the acceleration of the day of the Lord by the holiness of his people. The least one shall become a plant and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord and it's time I will hasten. Um, this seems to have been carried forward even into some places in the New Testament. You can even think to the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. The prayers of his people seems to be one way in which the coming of the kingdom is accelerated. But here it's said explicitly, Acts chapter 3, 19 through 20, repent so that the times of refreshing may come to the household of Israel. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ when that day when you're good uh, when that day comes our second Peter text says that heaven and all its planets will be set ablaze to melt now there is a debate of course whether or not this means restoration or replacement there are some who view that whole heavens and the whole earth and all that there is to it is going to be destroyed. It's all going to be sort of thrown out the window, if you will, and God is going to set up something completely new. There are people on the other side of the fence who I think have a very justified argument in saying that is going to be a restoration. It's going to be a recreation. If you go back to the Genesis narrative, it's sort of that chaotic nothingness out of which God creates order. Okay, there's your first created. Then he destroys the world. With the flood, it goes back to chaotic sort of nothingness, and God creates order out of it again. And perhaps that's what God intends to do is, echoing Romans, the whole creation is groaning and urging to be restored, so maybe the Lord is going to restore what is already here. I don't really see any application or practical point as to whether it's going to be new elements of gold or the same elements of gold that God is going to to use. I don't know if it'll be the same moles of material or different moles of material, but it'll be material and it'll be physical and the Lord's people will inhabit that place. It, it, uh, we, we will see <laughs> whether or not it is uh, restoration or a replacement. We will get to settle that debate with our own eyes. Uh, for our last section, we have the promise of recreation, verse 13. God has promised us that this recreation will occur. And Peter, again, carrying on an Isaiah tradition, uh, in, uh, personifies righteousness. He, he speaks of it as a person. And Isaiah also speaks as justice as a person. Uh, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, love perfected, total worship of God, and Christ is our lamp forevermore. We saw a judgment presented to us. Emily, you read that text, I believe, um, in Revelation chapter 20, where we see that judgment on display. But for those of us who are listed in the book of life, we'll make it through that judgment and to see the glory of chapter 21, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, If you don't know Christ, there is no way to make it through judgment without him. God's wrath is so severe and it is so fiery that no one could survive either physically or spiritually um, on their own. But this is how great our God is and how, how worthy he is to be worshipped um, because he has chosen to delay so that we might get to know him and to enjoy him forever. We can hasten this by loving our fellow man, 
and worshiping and loving our God according to who he is and venerating him with the appropriate heart level of worship. If we know the Lord Jesus as Savior, he is able to protect us through that final day. And we can joyfully say amen and amen to the closing words of Revelation, which I have for tonight. Revelation 22, uh, 12 through 17, and then 20 through 21. Beginning in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the waters of life without price. Down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I want to thank you um, for our time in Second Peter so far. And as we come to the conclusion of this book, Lord, I pray that we would live an apocalyptic life. But by that we mean one that is full of love toward neighbor and one that is full of love towards you. And focusing on the fact that an apocalyptic life means focus on the next kingdom, not this one, Lord. And I pray that our motivation would, would be pure as we interact with other people. God, we get so bogged down in the little things of this life, and we, we just lose the forest for the trees, and we lose the grand scheme. Help us to see the bigger picture though it is truly, literally impossible for us to be infinite as you are infinite, God, I pray that we would learn to see that our life is but a blip of fading flower, of burning up of the grass, and that one day you will burn up this grass and you will ensure that that flower is gone um, and usher in a new heavens and a new earth that fulfills all your promises and that you have secured that all of your people have made it successfully to the day that you have appointed for them. Lord, we thank you for even this small group of people that you have delayed your return for, and I pray that in turn we can hasten the coming of the Lord Jesus. Um, even so come, Lord Jesus, in, in Christ's name. Amen.